I'm impressed with this group. Uh, Romans is not an easy book, and you guys have hung with us. You've waded through kind of the deep waters of theology uh, as Paul has walked us through some incredible uh, but oftentimes difficult truths to grasp and comprehend, and you guys have hung in there. And not just that, as I sit here as a, as a dad, I'm old enough to be most of your dads, right? But to sit here in this room and to watch you worship, to watch you respond, your youth, your passion, your exuberance for the Lord does a work in me. I just want you guys to know that. Like, it has been, it's been encouraging through my heart. So I'm just grateful for you guys. And I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. I'm very grateful for this opportunity. So this is the body of Christ, and you guys have encouraged me this week. So I just want to say thank you for the privilege that it is to stand up here and just to minister alongside of you guys. So thank you. So with that, though, we've got some work to do. If I can stop crying and get moving forward, we'll do this tonight. So chapter 8 of Romans, we're going to finish up kind of Paul's uh, moment where he, uh, oh, I call it affectionately, loses his mind uh, based on what, all that we have seen this week. And then Paul is going to, we're going to fast forward through the book a little bit and land at a place where Paul's going to tell us, based on everything that we have heard that he has written thus far, what we now are to do. And I want to give us, in a sense, some marching orders. I want to give us some instructions as to what it means as we now leave this place where we have been um, strengthened together, encourage one another. What does it look like to take this idea of walking in the spirit and not walking in the flesh and going down the hill to our respective homes and our respective communities and doing just that? So just by way of reminder, we left off Romans Wednesday morning, right? It's now Thursday evening. We talked very first night together, the idea of condemnation, right? We all understood that we are condemned before a holy God, that our sin has a price and the penalty for that sin is death. But the good news was that we found out the next morning, we have been declared righteous by God through the person of Jesus Christ. He did what we could not do. He gave us new life through the death of his son. And we rejoice in that, in that sense of what he did for us, because it was all him and not us. We simply responded by faith, putting our full trust in that reality. We then are secure because we did nothing to earn that salvation we can be assured that God has got us. He is the rope and he is good. But in the midst of that, as we learned, there could be a temptation maybe to say, God, you're telling me I can never, I can never out-sin grace. There's no sin that I can commit that you would reject me. So there may be a temptation in my heart to continue down this old lifestyle in the flesh and abuse the grace that you've been given me. And Paul says, uh-uh, you don't understand what you've been given if that's the case. If that is the position of your heart, Maybe you don't really understand what happened. Mega anoints it. May it never be. Heck no, Paul says. That is not our response to grace. How who we who have died to sin continue to live in it, Paul tells us. And then we began to go on this journey of, okay, then what does it mean to die to sin? Because I understand I've, I've been freed from the mastery of sin, right? That old queen in my life that used to rule over me, that I've been set free from. God graciously came to my life, set me free from that, that, that chain that bound me. I now live in Graceland with a new and wonderful king who loves me and cares about me. Uh, but that tension is still there. I'm dead to the penalty of sin. I'm dead to the power of sin, but I'm still alive to the presence of sin because sin did not die and it still lurks in the background. But Paul said, even though he has a struggle with this, just as you and I do in Romans chapter 7, of walking in the flesh and still doing the things that he finds himself not wanting to do, but doing them anyway. He says, there is a hope for us because we have been given in chapter 8 
a security, a down payment, the Holy Spirit, a new power source to walk this thing out. And what Paul does at the end of chapter 8 of Romans is we kind of move to the, the backside of that. He says, guys, if you fully understood this, as Paul has written this out, I want you to notice his response. And we're going to pick up there in chapter 8, verse 31. And Paul's going to give you a poem, really an anthem, uh, his song to God for what he has done on our behalf. And in these verses, Paul's going to now ask four questions and with them now provide four assurances that you and I have. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 31, and here's your first question. What shall we say to these things? And this things has to do with everything that Paul has told us so far of the majesty of God and what he has done on our behalf. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? That's a hypothetical question, so to speak. Is there opposition to God's people? In the grand scheme of things, can anyone oppose what salvation has done for us? As much as God is for it, no one can be against it. So God says, no one is opposed to us. Verse 32, he goes on. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? There is not only no opposition here, but there, that idea is continued here in verse 32. The question that Paul is asking is, what do you think is harder for God to give? Is it harder for him to give his son on the cross or to give you heaven? The answer again is his son. If he was willing to give you his son so that you and I can be saved, do you really think he's going to withhold heaven from us? God is for you. So now he asks in verse 33, a second of four questions. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who can accuse us before God? Satan, the accuser, would love to do that, to point a finger at God's people and try to separate us from him. But can he? Paul says no, because at the end of verse 33, who is the one who declared you righteous? It says God is the one who declares righteous or justifies. So there is no accusation against us. That's the idea. The third question here in verse 34, he says, then who is the one who condemns? Satan also seeks to condemn us, to prove our guilt continually before God. He would love to do that. But Paul says, can he? Can you lose your salvation just because there is one out there who continually seeks to bring sin before God's throne? Paul says, no way. Christ Jesus in verse 34 is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. There is no condemnation. We saw that earlier in chapter eight as well. We are not condemned. You and I are innocent. Uh, because of what God has justified in us. John tells us that it's not because, or sorry, that it is because we have an advocate in Christ who defends us with his own blood. And those accusations and threats of condemnation are simply not heard because of what Jesus is doing continually before the Father on our behalf. You and I are righteous because of Christ. We are secure because of Christ. And now he asks a fourth and last question, a last appeal. Who then in verse 35 will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Is there anything out there that could actually separate you and I from Christ once you have been saved? Paul says, absolutely not. Thank you. No. And notice thus far, do you see what Paul's doing? There's no opposition. 
There's no accusation. There's no condemnation. And now he'll argue there is no separation. The question is, are you and I secure in the love and the grip of grace of the Father? The question is an overwhelming yes. And the reason there is no opposition is because God happens to love you. The reason there is no accusation is because God has declared you righteous. The reason there is no condemnation is because God is your defense lawyer and he is perfect. And now why is there no separation in verse 37? He says, but in all these things, we have overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. When those things happen, it's literally translated here, you are far more than a conqueror in Christ. Not only will those things not separate you from Christ, they actually prove me and you to be God's. So how sure is Paul that nothing can separate you from the love of God and salvation? Look as he finishes chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. He says, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, do you see what Paul is trying to hammer home? Do you think there's a reason that he is telling us over and over again that we are secure in the love of the Father? Do you know why that is? Because just like me, you struggle with that idea of insecurity. Because in a moment, in time, as we leave this place, sin will creep back into our lives, and we will have tendencies to doubt and to wonder. And Paul says no. So he gives this, this incredible anthem of praise to say, God, you are good. And you have demonstrated that now through eight chapters in Romans, that we can trust you, that we are saved. So as Paul finishes this section, he's literally just mind-blown at the bigness and the goodness of the God that we serve, you and I are secure. So here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to give you not only the logical response to this uh, unbelievable God, but he's going to show us what a proper understanding of this idea of love and security and all that God has done, what ultimately that should produce in us. I want you to flip over now to Romans chapter 12. And I want to finish our or at least time in Romans there. And I want you to listen to what Paul says, given everything that has been said so far, what he believes we should do in response to this incredible truth. He says, therefore, chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I want you to notice what Paul is saying. Therefore, basically that's saying after everything we have read now at this point in 11 chapters of Romans, we skipped obviously 9 through 11, but you get the idea. Based on all these miraculous truths that we know to be true, we now need to respond to this. And he says, by the mercies of God, this isn't out of duty. This isn't out of a have to. This is out of a delight in understanding what our Father has done on our behalf. And he says, I want you to give your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, not a physical death like a sheep or a goat in the Old Testament. This is a living one, one in which only the only death that takes place is our old self. 
where we rise now to a newness of life to offer to God what we are, what is holy and acceptable to him. And just like these Old Testament sacrifices that would be offered, the aroma then that would come up from our lives, from our offering to him, to literally lay our lives down at his feet is pleasing to him. And I want you to notice this whole act, Paul said, is worship. It is your spiritual service of worship. If the worship team didn't tell you in the breakout, maybe if you missed it, that word worship is just an old word of meanings to ascribe worth. Who else in our lives can we ascribe such worth to but God? Given what he has done, how else will we respond to that? Worship isn't something you just say with your mouth. It's an act of our very lives. And Paul goes on now as he concludes in verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, if you're going to walk with Jesus in this world, you're going to have to break out of the mold the world has put you in. And to do that, there's going to be a struggle. In a lot of ways, you are all going to go home and you're going to live like salmon swimming upstream against the current of life that everyone else around you maybe is tempted to go in. And instead of being conformed, I want you to notice what Paul is saying needs to happen. Here's how that begins. He says, I want you to be transformed. That word, by the way, is where we get our word metamorphosis. It is how how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. I want you to metamorphosize. I want you to become something different, something that you can never, ever go back to, to not walk in the flesh, but walk in the spirit in the newness of life that you have been given. And as you give yourself to God, this growth process by which the Holy Spirit provided for you and enlightens you and leads you, he will start to change your thinking, your perspectives. What's the best way to renew your mind? You got to get the garbage out and get the good stuff in. So this idea is we maybe bring it back to where we were Wednesday morning of presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice is another way of Paul simply saying, I want you to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And as believers, Paul says, we have a choice. We can make a decision. We certainly can walk in the flesh, but that is not God's heart for us. As we learned in Romans chapter 8 earlier, Paul says, brethren, we are not under obligation anymore to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, Paul said, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So God has opened up a door for us to a better way. So here's what I would like to do. I would like to give you some some tools, if you will, some ideas of what does that look like tangibly? Um, How do I walk in the Spirit in this life that now God has asked me to live in, to to live by the Spirit and to walk by the Spirit, as Paul mentions? And I want to make a distinction as we move forward. Uh, There's going to be a significant difference in us just trying to do what God wants us to do versus training to do what God wants to do. Let me give you maybe an illustration. In the height of COVID in 2020, a bunch of my high school buddies and I got together on Zoom and were wrestling with like feeling a little bit boxed in, constrained and frustrated, probably a lot of the same as you guys were, right? Being at home, being in masks and just frustrated with the situation. And we found ourselves going a little bit stir crazy. So the five of us from California to Kentucky to Texas and everywhere in between, we just said, hey, let's commit to do something together. Let's let's put a goal uh, on the horizon. Each 
All of us will just choose a goal, and then we're going to hold each other accountable to meet that goal. Well, my goal was to run a half marathon. Now, I hadn't run a lick in about 15 years since I cut my toes off. So if you hadn't heard the story yet, I'm sorry, I cut my toes off. So that's how I am losing them. That's how they are gone. Uh, but I decided I'm going to do this, right? And I literally hadn't run in 15 years, but I had committed to these guys to run a half marathon. And I had no idea where to begin. But I knew if I just rolled out of bed the next day and attempted to run a half marathon, and I tried my hardest, I'd maybe get a half mile in. Maybe by the grace of God, I would get a mile in. But there's not a chance that I was going to be able to run 13.1 miles. So you know what I did? I called my buddy who had run four half marathons. And I said, Brian, I need you to walk me through this. What do I need to know? How do I need to properly prepare? And he said, Mike, if you really want to commit your life to this, you're going to need to change a lot of things. He said, you're going to need at least three months of training five days a week in order to run this run. And I said, okay. He said, not only that, but you're going to have to change your daily routine. You're going to have to find times in the pockets of these days to, to train that you maybe hadn't before. I said, okay. He said, not only that, but you're going to need to change your diet. You can't go eat like a bowl of Fruit Loops and then go on a five-mile run. It doesn't work that way. You've actually got to put good food in your body. You're going to have to eat correctly if you want to do this. And I said, okay. He said, you're also going to need to sleep. He said, your body needs to rest. You've got to work it really, really hard. You've got to fuel it properly, and then you've got to sleep. You've got to let your body recover. And I said, okay. He said, you're also, Mike, along the way, going to have setbacks. He said, you're going to deal with injuries. You're going to deal with a lack of motivation. There's going to be days you don't want to get out of bed. He said, there's going to be days that you're frustrated and you wish you wouldn't do that. He said, you're going to have to learn mentally the fortitude to push through that. You're going to have to endure that season. And I, I said, okay, Brian, that's, that's a pretty long list. Is there anything else? He said, no, that's, that's about the extent of it. And I said, okay. He said, you're just going to need to know that you're going to have to commit to this journey. And I'm going to have to relearn all of these things. This is the idea of what it means to walk in the spirit. God is not inviting us to try. God is inviting us to train. And those are very, very different things. Dallas Willard, who's a very famous guy who writes on the subject of spiritual disciplines, talks about training in this way. He says, training is to engage my life around certain practices that enable me to do which I, um, sorry, enable me to do that which I cannot now do on willpower alone. So if I practice these things, if I engage in these things, over time, I will be able to do them. The end goal, by the way, of walking in the spirit and the training that it takes is a, a rich, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, enjoying his presence, seeing victory over sins that maybe have been besetting in our life for a long time, a life of delight in God, walking by the Spirit. Friends, in my life, those are the things that I want, but I'm not going to roll out of bed and find those magically delivered to me uh, tomorrow. I'm going to have to train to do that. So before I give you now maybe some how-tos, I want to orient us to what this commitment requires. Just like my buddy prepared me for the half marathon and mentally helped me understand this is what it's going to take, I want to share with you about walking down this road and what it's going to require. And if you got a pen with you, I want to give you five things, five things to consider regarding walking with the Spirit. Number one, you need to know that walking with the Spirit is a process. There is no easy fix. This is not a microwave thing. You don't get just to pop it in and get results back immediately. There's no formula. 
There's no incantation that you can pray. There's nothing of that sense. And if we're honest, not only is it a process, it's a messy process. It's hard. It's difficult. It takes time. There are just like in training your body for certain things, setbacks that take place. Paul talks about it like this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you now be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has created in righteousness and holiness and truth. You take off the old self and you put on the new self. That is ongoing. That is constantly happening. That is a daily decision that we make. So we need to understand this at the get-go is a process. Secondly, walking in the Spirit begins with a proper understanding of the gospel. Friends, if you have not at this point put your faith in Jesus Christ, this message is not for you to simply say it. There is no hope to walk in the Spirit if the Spirit of God is not first within you. If you have not come to the end of yourself and understood that you need a Savior, that you need the gospel to infiltrate your life, you're never going to be able to walk these things out. So as we talk about this idea of training, uh, we need to understand it's the gospel doing a work in us because we are fully forgiven, fully accepted, fully known, and fully loved. So as we think about what it means to put our will to this, we have already been those things. So as we talk about doing certain things, doing certain disciplines, we're not doing them to earn favor with God. We're not doing this to check a box so that God will be pleased with us. He already is pleased with us. He loves us already. So as we think about these things, we need to have that in the back of our mind, okay? This is not moralism. This is not legalism. This isn't some way to earn God's favor. That is not at all how this works. But we need the ongoing work of the gospel in our lives. So thirdly then, walking in the Spirit ends with continued need for the gospel. Friends, the same gospel that saved you is the same gospel that sanctifies you. That's Paul's fancy way of saying, makes you more like Jesus. The grace that we were given by Jesus to come to him because of what he did on our behalf is the same grace and the same power that's going to make us more like him. Remember what Paul said in Galatians. We read this verse earlier in our time together. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? He says to the Galatians, it was the grace and power of God that saved you. Why in the world should you think it's your own efforts that are going to make you look more like Jesus? It is the grace and power of God that's going to enter into your life through the Spirit to make you look more like Him. Fourthly, walking in the Spirit is initiated and sustained by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 29 is a reminder. He says, for those who he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. You guys know that? That is his plan for you. For those he foreknew, he wants us, desires us to become conformed 
to the image of his son. He wants us as believers to look like Jesus. He says in Philippians, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is God's hope in us, but it's the Holy Spirit at work in us doing these things. This is a believer opening up to God, raising his sail to the wind, so to speak, of the Spirit and participating in what God is doing in our lives, being courageous, inquisitive, in humility, saying, Lord, lead me, walk me down this road. I want you to lead me through this process, but I am humbly submitting my life before you. It has to be Holy Spirit driven. Paul says in Philippians chapter two, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And lastly, as we talk about this idea of what it means to go on this journey, walking in the Spirit requires your participation. Colossians 3 says, Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Paul gives those commands because those are things we can choose to do, or those are things we can choose not to do. So if we're not working in participation with the Holy Spirit, it's not like he's going to lay us down in an arm wrestling match and force us to do something against our will. He's there to help us, but we must participate in that with him. We need to keep seeking him, setting our mind on the things that are above. We are called to be actively involved in this process of becoming more like Jesus. So, in summary, walking in the Spirit is a process. It begins with a proper understanding of the gospel. It ends with a continued need for the gospel. It is initiated and sustained by the Holy Spirit, and it requires our participation to do that. You with me so far? Okay. So, we've seen some things to consider now as we walk in the Spirit. Let's talk practical. Let's talk boots on the ground. Okay, so Mike, when I get up tomorrow morning or when I get up Monday morning and I'm back home, what do I actually do? What, what, what does it look like to actually walk with the Spirit? In the same way that there were things that I needed to do as I trained for my half marathon, short runs, long runs, rest, strengthening my core, eating certain foods, what are those things that as believers we need to do to walk in the Spirit? the tangible, actual things that will help us do that. Let me give you a list to maybe get you started. There's tons more, but maybe give you um, the, 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 the most basic diet, if you will, the things that I would say are probably most important. Certainly not a complete list, but I think it's a great place to start, okay? Let me give you a few. Number one, first and foremost, we need Bible. We need Bible intake. There's a reason that Heartland is so passionate about getting students in the Word. There's a reason that they create space for us to do the four ones, to read a chapter, to write a verse down, to pray a prayer about that verse, and to share it with somebody else. Friends, the only megaphone, I shouldn't say the only, one of the most prominent megaphones that God has in our lives concerning how He speaks to you and I is through His Word. If you are not reading His Word, you don't know what He wants. You don't know what his will is. You don't know what sin is or isn't. Okay, the word of God is paramount to that journey. Now, I don't know what your time with the Lord looks like. It may look like the four ones every day, okay? You may read a chapter, 
you may find like a lot of success in that. That's not always how I do it. In fact, friends, if I'm honest, there are times I do not read the Bible every day. Can I just be honest about that? I'm not trying to earn God's favor. He already loves me. I'm, in, I'm secure in who I am, in him. But you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll read something. And maybe the next day I don't read, but I'm thinking about it. I'm processing it. I'm like the, cha- the cow chewing the cud. And I'm allowing maybe God to do a work in me in that. Okay? So I'm, I'm trying to allow the Spirit of God to bring those things back into my life so that I can think about them. Okay? But Bible intake is paramount to this process. This is how God speaks. It is the very Word of God. Okay? So number one, Bible. Number two, journaling. You remember when you wrote that prayer today during your time? Do you know what you did? Guys, you journaled. I know it feels like a little bit of maybe a feminine word, a little bit weird for us. It's like, wait a second, I'm a man and I journaled. What happened, right? Uh, That's all that it is. Journaling is a time to force us to be introspective, to force us to be reflective, to say, God, what are you doing? What am I learning? What are you teaching me? And there's something magical about putting pen to paper in that process. Guys, in my garage, there is a box, and on it, it says Michelle's Journals. My wife has decades of journals, prayers she's written to the Lord, things she prayed for our kids. She's back when we were dating, things that she was praying. She's pulled those out and showed them to our children at times. This is what I was praying for you. Do you remember back in sixth grade when you were going through this friend thing? I was praying these things for you. And now eight years later, do you see how God has answered that? Do you see how he's been faithful? Journaling is an important part of that process, okay? So don't make it feel awkward. Do what works for you. Uh, But journaling is important. It helps us say, God, what's in this text that I'm reading that, that you have for me, okay? So journal, okay? Thirdly, prayer. This is huge. Uh, this is our way to communicate and commune with God. Uh, the Bible is obviously his, one of his megaphones to speak to us, but so is prayer. It is also an opportunity for us to pause and to listen. And friends, don't worry about what your prayers look like or what they sound like. Prayer is an opportunity not for us to be perfect, but to be honest. To say, Lord, if you know everything about me, then you know what's going on in my soul. You know the struggles that I'm having. So just tell them. Talk to God. It doesn't have to sound super fancy. Lord, I'm struggling with this today. I'm ticked off at that guy. That dude that cut me off at the the red light, I really wanted to flip him off today, but I didn't. But that's what's going on. I should just say it, right? God already knows what's in my heart. Uh, He's not surprised. So whatever that is, bring it to him and say, God, I I want you to work on that in me, right? That frustration that's innate in me, that response that I just, I want to respond in anger. God, would you allow your spirit to work on that? Would you shave off those rough edges of me that don't look like your son? Would you help me to grow in that? As I've been asking you to do this for years in my life, we're still at work in that, okay? He hasn't given up on me yet, but that's the idea. So prayer needs to be a regular part of what we're doing. And the beauty of prayer is you can pray wherever. Eyes open, eyes closed, head bowed, in the shower, driving, whatever it is, you can pray. So prayer needs to be something that we're doing. And I just, again, I want to remind us, God already knows. Tell him, you don't need to impress him. Just be honest and seek him in that realm. Fourthly, I would say friendship, or maybe I would use the word community. We talked about it this morning. We cannot do this by ourselves. I encourage you guys at some point in your Bible reading, go look at all the one another's in Scripture. All the times that we are commanded as believers to do things with and for 
one another, with other people. This is not a game that we will ever survive on our own. Uh, we're like the little fish that got out of the pod and is off by itself at the first fish that's going to eaten by the shark. We need to do this together. So find a group of people that you can hang with. Find a group of people that you trust and that you love, that you can walk down those roads with. Um, my daughter's now husband, when they were dating in high school, he came to me and said, Mike, listen, this environment at Clovis North, um, in terms of trying to walk with Jesus, is impossible. He said, I, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Would you help me start a Bible study just to find some dudes that we can just during lunch one time a week get in a room, talk about our struggles, talk about the Word of God, so I feel like at least there's a couple other salmon that are swimming upstream with me. Could we do that together? Maybe you need something similar. Just a group of people that you can lock arms with in school and say, listen, this is the commitment that we're making. We're walking this way together, and we're going to hold one another accountable. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to help one another in that process. And when you're down, I've got your back. And when I'm struggling, you've got my back. Find those people. And I know some of you, even just from listening to the questions that you're asking, that that's hard to find. Put yourself out there. Ask. Risk. Okay, but you need to do that. We need that. None of us are wired to do this by ourselves. Fifthly, serve somewhere. Go give your life away. Use your spiritual gifts. If you're not sure what those gifts are uh, that God has given you when you became a believer, the Bible tells us everybody has at least one. Nobody has them all, but there are gifts that are mentioned in Scripture. Ask your youth pastor about them. He would love or she would love to tell you more about what those gifts are. But go serve somewhere. I promise you, you guys don't think, well, maybe I'm not old enough or whatever. They would love to have you in kids' ministry. They would love to have you working in the nursery. They would love to have you hanging out with three-year-olds and playing games and, and giving back. Friends, there is something magical about getting our eyes off ourselves and allowing God to work through us to say, Lord, look, you can use me. You can use my brokenness. You can use my life. You can use these things that aren't perfect, but you can use these things to encourage another girl. Maybe I can lead a life group in the junior high ministry as a high schooler. I've been there. I remember that season. I had to walk through that. Maybe I could lend an ear or a hand or something like that. But go give your life away. Go find somewhere within the body of Christ that you can serve. And if you're not sure where that is, go try something. If you hate it, no big deal. Go try something else. But put it to work and try those things. It's amazing what God will do in you and through you when we do that. And then lastly, I would encourage you to practice confession and repentance, both to God and to other people. There's something beautiful about pausing in our lives and saying, Lord, is there anything here? Is there anything in my spirit maybe that I'm not aware of? Is there anything that you want to, to reveal to me that isn't right, maybe isn't like you, that is, is of the flesh and not of the spirit? And allow God to do that. This is how the psalmist says it in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. God, you know me already. Search my heart and through your spirit, will you reveal to me anything in me that maybe I need to, to work on? And if I maybe in that process ran over that guy with my mouth and I need to go apologize, Lord, would you, would you help me to do that? Will I go ask forgiveness for that person for what wasn't my heart, but I did that anyway? Would you help me do that? In our lives, we need to create a space for that, just again to reflect and to process. 
So as you think about all of those things, as you think about what it means in our life to, um, to walk with the Lord in that manner, I want to ask you maybe to think through, what is your plan as you go down the hill tomorrow? As we leave this place, uh, for many of us, for most of us, on a spiritual high, what is your plan to go walk with God? What do you need to implement? What needs to start Monday morning? First thing is we head down that place. And maybe even better yet, Saturday morning, because we're heading home tomorrow. What do we need to do? What are the things and habits that we need to start? And I just want to remind you on this journey, it is a roller coaster. It's not like this. It doesn't start at point A and go straight to point B, and it all looks pretty and perfect. That is not how a relationship with God works. There are days that you're going to feel that you take one step forward and four steps backwards. That's part of the process. Embrace it. There's ups and there's downs. And when you're up, rejoice in those. When you're down, remember God is there, and he loves you. And that season will not last forever. And you with your homies or your homegirls, you're going to make it through that season because they are there to support you and love you in those moments. But recognize that is simply part of the process, okay? So there's some maybe practical, real boots on the ground thoughts for you guys as you leave this place. As we finish tonight, I want to tell you about one specific student. I've spoken at Heartland now, I think, five times. But there is one guy that stands out in my mind, uh, maybe more than others. He was a little short guy, um, really unassuming, skinny kid. He was probably a buck oh five, like soaking wet, right? His name was Aaron. I met him at youth camp uh, back in, in winter camp here this last February. Uh, Aaron, what was unique about him, though he was exuberant and fun and like a great guy to be around, he was completely blind. And he came to camp. And he was bold, right? And he, he put himself out there, and he was just a great guy. And I, at the end of one of my talks, was, was giving the illustration of what does it mean to have faith, right? What does it mean to actually, as we talked about even here, to put your faith in something? And I said, Aaron, I need your help with something. Would you be willing to come up on stage with me at the very end of my talk, okay? And I'm going to ask you to do something, and you're going to have to trust me. So what Aaron didn't know is I'd brought a chair up on stage, and I had kind of walked him up stage, and worship team was kind of behind us, and I talked to Aaron, and I was talking to the people about, hey, this is what faith looks like. It's one thing, right, just to simply say I have faith mentally, but it's another thing to, like, to technically sit in the chair. And I was going to ask Aaron to sit in the chair, but Aaron didn't know that there was a chair there, right? So his act of faith was a big act of faith because he's having to trust in me that, that he's okay, even though he has no idea what's behind him. Well, we go through the illustration. He sits in the chair. Everybody's like, yeah! Right, they lose their mind and they're loving Aaron because he's just a great dude, right? Well, now the worship team's up there and they start singing. But what I realized was I forgot to tell Aaron that we had to leave the stage when we were done with that. So Aaron's sitting in his chair and the band starts and they're like rocking out. I'm like, hey, Aaron, you know, I'm trying not to be loud and rude with everybody else there. I'm like, we need to leave the stage. He's like, huh? And I'm like, so I just kind of walk off the stage, and I go sit over to the side, like literally right over here. And here the worship team is with Aaron sitting in a chair. And everybody's looking at him, and he has no idea because he's blind. There's 230 people. And do you know what Aaron did? He worshiped. He lost his ever-loving mind. I mean, it was amazing to watch a guy who had an audience of one, had no idea that he was sitting on stage and that everyone there was in a sense looking at him while he worshiped. 
He lifted his hands to the Lord and he praised him. And in that moment, in that three minutes as we worship, I learned more about what it means to lay my life before God, to walk the way that he wants me to walk and to live for an audience of one. So friends, as we go down the hill tomorrow, will you remember Aaron? Will you remember as we walk in the spirit that you have already been given the approval of God? He loves you. Let's lift our hands and let's give our lives as a living and holy sacrifice to him because there's nothing else, friends, in this world that is worth your affections more than the one who gave his very life for you. There is nothing more that you can pursue that will give you more delight, more satisfaction, more joy ultimately in your life than pursuing Christ. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to stand with me. And let's declare together that we're going to do that. I'm going to pray, but let's commit together one as one, one voice and one people that we're going to leave this place and walk with Jesus. Father, thank you for all that we have learned, for all that we have heard this week. Thank you for the incredible worship team that has led us in worship and shown us, God, how to freely lift our hands and lift our spirits to you. God, as we leave this place, we need to take some of the hill down with us into the valley, as my friend Chris said. We need to remember what was here, but we need to not leave it here. Father, would you help us, as Paul says, to give our lives as a sacrifice, a living and holy sacrifice that is our spiritual service of worship that is fully acceptable to you. Father, would you help us to lay our lives down, not just today, but tomorrow and the next day and every day thereafter. And would we as a group of people declare together that we are gonna walk with one another in our individual communities, in our schools, and we are gonna help one another accomplish that task, that we will together pursue Christ with reckless abandonment. Father, that we will pursue you above all other things. And there will be days, God, that we're going to fail. There are going to be days that it is ugly. But we are committing even right now to get back up, to ask forgiveness, to move forward, to walk in your love in the security that we have in you, and to do that daily, Father, until you come back or you take us home. And all God's people said, amen. All right, friends. Thank you.